0: רגע, לפני שמתחילים. אם אתם יכולים, בבקשה, דרגו אותנו באפליקציות הפודקסטים שלכם. זה מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפליץ את הבשורה של הערוץ ליותר אנשים. ממש תודה רבה לכם. פתיח, הפודקאסט של
1: דוקטור יוזביץ'.
0: Do we need to set science free? And what does it even mean? Who is a captor of science? And how do you distinguish a bad science from good science? Hi, my name is Roy Ozevich, and welcome to my channel where I host the most interesting and influencing people and scholars from all around the world to discuss science, religion, philosophy, artificial intelligence, and even more. And my guest today is Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. If you don't know the name, so first shame on you. He is a biologist and the author of more than 80 technical papers. He gave the famous banned TED talk, a brilliant TED talk that was banned by TED. He is the author of the science delusion. All in the U.S. Another name: Science Set Free. And science and spiritual practices and other books as well. He is also the originator of the Morphic Resonance Theory, and he was a close friend with the late Terence McKenna. So, Dr. Rupert, thank you so much for coming today. It's a true honor to have you on the show. How are you? I'm fine. It's good to be with you, Roy. Okay, thank you so much for coming. So let's I think that we should start at the beginning and The most important word regarding your impressive work is scientism. Now put it simply, it is a blind belief in science and Richard Dawkins himself said that this is a dirty word. (laughs) Now you have two names for your book, one science and three, and the other is a science delusion. And I think that it is, that the delusion is very close to what we call scientism. So first, what scientism is, and second, If science has brought us so far, why is it bad to believe in science?
1: Well, I think it's good to believe in science. Um, You know, I'm a scientist. I spent my whole career doing scientific research, um, and I'm still very busy, you know, writing scientific papers and doing experiments. So I'm totally pro-science, but it's precisely because I'm pro-science that I'm worried about the dogmatic attitudes that have become associated with it. Um, From the late 19th century onwards, the implicit and sometimes explicit official orthodoxy of science has been materialism. And materialism is the philosophy, as you know, that matter or physical reality is the only reality. The universe is unconscious, everything's unconscious and mechanical, governed by purposeless laws, Evolution is purposeless. Our minds are nothing but the activity of our brains. So this is the materialist worldview. Uh, It's a philosophy rather than science. And it's based on a whole series of assumptions. um, And these have become the assumptions from which scientists work. The mind is nothing but the brain. So virtually the whole of cognitive science, um, academic psychology, neuroscience, is based on this assumption. Um, The world is mechanical rather than organic. Uh, Again, this is the foundation of so much of scientific research. And what I would say is that these are restrictive assumptions. They're they're not scientific facts, which many people think they are. Um, They're simply assumptions. And um, scientism is a worldview based on these assumptions of materialism. that um, treats them as if they're established truths. As a scientist, what I do in my book, Science Set Free, or The Science Delusion, is take the 10 dogmas, uh, the 10 most common and prevalent dogmas of science, and turn them into questions, and see if we treat them as hypotheses rather than assumptions, how well do they turn out in the light of scientific evidence? So it's really an attempt to look at the foundations of science and see whether they could be different. And if they are different, then whole new areas of potential research open up.
0: Okay. So let me just see if I got it correctly. There is a difference between dogmatism and scientism because the scientific world has a tendency to push back descending ideas. Science is not pluralistic by nature and it has an orthodox view. And, and uh, Of course, it was Max Planck who said that a new scientific truth doesn't off by convincing its opponent and making them see the light, but rather because its opponent eventually die and the new generation grows up that are familiar with it. So basically, the science is dogmatic, and this is part and this might be something inherent in science, but scientism is just to take the materialistic worldview to the extreme and say. I cannot and I'm not willing even to discuss any other scientific alternative. Is this correct?
1: Yes, it's a good summary. Um, And scientism um, is actually not what most scientists believe. Most practicing scientists are just getting on with the job in a specialized area of science. They're not educated in the philosophy of science, mostly. I mean, for example, in Cambridge, which does have a philosophy of science course, only about 25 percent of natural science students study philosophy of science in many universities, even less. So um, most scientists don't know much about the philosophy or the history of science. They're specialised in a particular area, solving puzzles within a framework set by their subspeciality. The ones who uh, speak loudly about the scientific worldview, the materialist worldview, are mostly popularizers like Richard Dawkins, um, who um, propagate this scientific worldview. And many of the believers in scientism uh, that I come across are not scientists and don't actually know much about science, Um, but they're completely convinced it's science rather than religion. That is provides the way forward. So it's usually associated with atheism uh, and often with militant atheism.
0: Okay, so I, I want to take one point from what you just said. I am g- regarding nature being purposeless. And I teach Maimonides in Israel, and Maimonides is heavily relied on the, the thinking of Aristotle. And Aristotle described four different reasons. One is the the reason with purpose why, why do why does the plane grow it want to you uh, want to fulfill it its purpose but ever ever since and i think that this is a correct observation science has abandoned the concept of purpose the concept of meaning in its inquiries science began to triumph it because uh, because Interleaving or, or, or set uh, set purpose inside the scientific world goes will get you to the philosophy of Aristotle or the physics of Aristotle. So maybe the idea that nature is purposeless is a good policy to propagate science. What do you think?
1: Well, um, in the seventeenth century. scientific revolution, the mechanistic revolution, uh, when uh, there was a shift in Europe from the idea of nature as organic. Medieval Christian theology was based on Aristotle largely, and it had the idea that there are purposes inherent in all living organisms, and that uh, nature is organic, um, what would now be called panpsychist or animistic. The 17th century revolution abandoned the idea that there are souls or purposes in nature and said everything is just mechanical uh, po- based on pushing and pulling and mechanical causes well that's pretty good if you're studying mechanical causes and mechanistic science is best when it comes to machines and um, which is its principal metaphor um, but it leaves out purpose. And the classic paradigm of mechanistic science is billiard ball atoms colliding with each other. <laughs> yes. But if you think about the actual metaphor, um, billiard balls are part of billiards. And billiards is a game. And people who play the game of billiards have a purpose. They want to win. People who make billiard balls and billiard tables and sell them... Um, Uh, uh, serving a purpose. Um, It's all purposive behaviour. So these billiard balls are within uh, a highly um, uh, purposive environment and it's a kind of abstraction to remove the purpose from them. In the case of animals and plants and humans, uh, whose behaviour is clearly purposive, they move towards ends or goals, Biologists undergo an extraordinary mental contortion because they have to pretend that they have no purposes and then they have to reinvent the purposes under different names like teleonomy instead of teleology um, and smuggle in purposes, for example, Richard Dawkins concept of selfish genes. Gives purposes to the genes. They're selfish. They want to get ahead, compete. With second, give
0: human attribute. Selfish is a human attribute, and we uh, it, it's like a human character, and we attribute it to a consciousness thing, a gene. How a gene could be selfish? It was also uh, raised by uh, the late Roger Scruton, the famous con- con- conservative philosopher, which is a great point.
1: Yes, exactly. You see, my, my point about my criticism of people like Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, who's a materialist philosopher of mind, is not that they're mechanistic, but that they're crypto vitalist. Um, what the, the selfish gene introduces, the, the purposive vital factors of vitalism, uh, projects them onto molecules, and then says that they're actually purposive and have these goals. The idea of the genetic program does very much the same. Um, What a a program for a computer is intelligently designed to carry out purposes. And so saying the genes constitute a genetic program is again smuggling purposes in. And when someone like Daniel Dennett compares the mind to the software, running the hardware of the brain. Then again, the software is uh, in a computer is purposive. People don't write random programs that do random things. They write programs to do useful things, to fulfill purposes. So actually it's impossible to avoid purpose. And I think it's much better to acknowledge it openly, frankly, and honestly, rather than pretend it's not there and then smuggle it in and use it cryptically. Daniel Dennett says that we need the concept of purpose to understand living organisms, but it's not really purpose, it's as if they're purposeful. Well, why say it's as if when actually they are? So I I think in practice, uh, modern mechanistic thinking is is very teleological. Uh, It's just that it pretends not to be.
0: Okay, so basically, when we abandoned the the purpose uh, aspect of physics, and it was fine, and it let physics triumph of because of the mechanical aspect, and 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 once the mechanical aspect was completed in the late twenties of the uh, the twenties uh, uh, or of the twentieth century, it was done. But when we moved to like advanced physics, so this. Uh, purposeless, I, I think, in many cases, is insufficient. And many people say, this is why we haven't seen a huge progress in physics in the last 40 or 50 years. So I would go from, from here to like the implication of your theory, because some people say, you know, those uh, thinking pathway leads to bad science. And my question is, how do you distinguish bad science for good science? For example, regarding the COVID, we have many people on the internet say that this is a fake. This is not a pandemic. This is like the Israeli conspiracy and the Vatican conspiracy. You, you, you received a, such, a, such an email recently. And this day we have the climate conference in Glasgow. So if there is an inherent difference, in your opinion, between people saying COVID doesn't exist, and people say, listen, global mo- global warming is a fraud.
1: Well, personally, I'm neither a COVID denier nor a climate change denier, and I take a rather conventional scientific view on both these issues. Um, I think the evidence is quite clear. I mean, I, I think science is about evidence. And um, I think that the evidence for COVID actually existing, I mean, Five million people have now died of something. Um, I suppose those who say deny COVID say they've died of something else, not COVID, but they've died of something. That's an undeniable fact. Um, there seems to be good evidence that vaccines actually work. They may have some dangers. I've been vaccinated three times now um, because I think the risk of the vaccine is much less than the risk of actually catching the disease. So... And climate change seems to me uh, it's clearly happening. Um, There can be some uh, argument about how much is because of carbon dioxide or methane or changes in solar activity, but it seems to me it's clear it's happening and that we've got something to do with it. I see all that as reasonable good science um, because it's amply backed up by evidence. Now, there are some kinds of uh, uh, scientific claims which I think are bad science because they're not backed up by evidence. And one example of bad science, I think, is the um, attitude of so-called skeptics to psychic phenomena like telepathy. Um, Many so-called skeptics say, there's no evidence for these, they don't exist, they're impossible, and anyone who works on them or thinks about them is a pseudoscientist. The interesting thing about people who say that is they don't look at the evidence. I've had debates with most of the psi deniers and the thing that they, uh, that they have in common is that they're utterly ignorant of the evidence. They think there's no need to look at it because they already know the truth. Um, and this is, a, I think, a, a very good touchstone for bad science. People who think they already know the answers and don't need to look at the evidence.
0: So please, let me just explain what what are you meaning, because I think that this is mind-blowing. You said many people uh, feel or, uh, or report that when they think of a close friend, he usually uh phone them and then we say usually ah it's merely statistic you know you think about your friend many times and most of the time he doesn't call so once in a while and this and this coincidence is uh, seems wonderful but then you say guys but we can conduct an experiment to measure this we can conduct an experiment that measure this thing and if we measure the things and you and you have done several of this experiment you 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 said with four people that you need to guess which one of of your clothes of your four friends are calling you and you say out out of mere statistic you need to be right um, approximately 20 25 percent of the time out one out of four but when you did the experiment the ratio was approximately 50 percent yes
1: yes about 45 percent yes
0: so This is when you have a a large enough sample, you cannot ignore this. Uh, Please, please help me explain what the facts are, because the facts doesn't correlate with your theory. This is mere statistic, because mere statistic will give me 25%. I'm more than almost double.
1: Yes? Yes. Yes. Well, you see, this is a good example, actually, because the how I start my research is I collect stories from people. I have a huge database about 12,000 stories of unexplained human and animal behavior. So I look at the natural history of what people claim, uh, what they say has happened to them. And lots of people say they've had this experience with telephones, for example, um, that they often think is telepathic. Well, since the invention of the telephone, this has been going on for well over a hundred years and for, A hundred years, sceptics said exactly what you say. Well, you think of people all the time. Occasionally, one of them rings. You forget all the times you're wrong. For a hundred years, that sceptical armchair argument was accepted by so-called scientists or scientific sceptics without a shred of evidence. When I first got interested in this... Um, I asked people who said that, you know, have you got any evidence? How many times do people think about their friends and how often do they ring? Where are the statistics? They had no evidence whatsoever. It was purely a theoretical argument. It's a reasonable hypothesis. So I decided to test it. And that's why I did these experiments where we have it during a fixed experimental period. The subject sits at home with a landline phone, no caller ID, they have four callers, people they know well. We pick the caller at random and ask, ring them and ask them to ring their friend. Uh, when the phone rings, they have to answer. They're being filmed before they pick it up, and that's that experiment gives a forty-five percent uh, with hundreds of trials, of a highly significant positive result. So this is a way of actually testing, uh, and and until I did these experiments. No one had done any experiments at all on this subject, and yet the so-called skeptics confidently dismissed the whole phenomenon. And one of their leading hitmen, the late James Randi, um, even awarded me the James Randi wooden spoon prize for stupid science for doing this research saying that he'd never heard of such a stupid idea as testing an obviously non-existent phenomenon and and that I should be subject to public ridicule for investigating it well now if you uh,
0: just a second if you if you're not familiar with James Randi James Randi is the originator of the JRA the JREF prize where he promised 1 million dollars for anyone who can prove some sort of, of uh, uh, supernatural abilities. So, so this is, and he, he began his career with a confort with Uri Geller. And Uri Geller, uh, and they, let me give you the other side because I myself practice mind reading telepathy as, as, a, as a mentalist, okay? So the other side, and I think that Wendy's argument is going like this. When you say that a mind reader, a clairvoyance, whatever, yes, like, like a psychic, is being tested, and he's being tested by scientists. So since your, uh, your background is biology, you look at Petri dish, and you say, okay, when do, do, do I see some germs in the Petri dish, yes or no? So the answer is either yes or no. But when you when you test a psychic, there are two possible outcomes. Either is will either is genuine, and this is great. Or is fraud. But if he is lying, he will try to mess your experiment. And this is not the case with the petri dish because if because he is basically a hustler. And what James Randi said. Scientists don't walk, usually, with hustlers. They don't have the tools. We, as magicians, we have the tools to catch hustlers. What do you think about this argument?
1: I think it's perfectly reasonable if you're dealing with hustlers. Um, You know, if you're dealing with people who make their living by entertainment and on the stage and so on, then you know everyone knows that magicians, mind readers, are doing it through various forms of tricks. Um, but there, it's precisely for that reason that I've concentrated not on um, stage magicians or professional psychics, but on totally ordinary people, and who have no motive for for um, cheating. I mean, they they're not getting any money out of claiming to be telepathic with telephone calls. I mean. of the population say they've had this experience. Uh, We're not talking about a tiny minority of professional psychics or clairvoyants or stage magicians. We're talking about normal people. So I've done all my experiments with perfectly normal people um, and we tested them under conditions where they're filmed in rooms with no other telephone or computer present uh, where the possibility of cheating is virtually ruled out. I've also done experiments on the sense of being stared at, which 95% of people say... Wow, they this is a
0: great research. This is great research. I <laughs> always think about it when, when I'm staring at someone. I say, oh, Sheldrake says that he can feel me right now. This is great. <laughs> this is great stuff. I use it all the time.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. Well, you see, that that research uh, on the sense of being stared at, again, is an extremely common phenomenon. Most children and adults all over the world have experienced it. And for 100 years or more, um, most believers in scientism have just brushed it aside. You know, it's superstition, illusion, coincidence. You turn around, you only remember the time someone's looking at you, etc. cetera. Well, there have now been tons of experiments on this which show it really exists, which is no surprise to most people. Um, And so, uh, and there again, Randy's argument doesn't really apply. These are not people who are trying to make a living out of pretending to be sensitive to stairs. Uh, These are just normal people. And I've also done research on dogs that know when their owners are coming home. As you know, I wrote a book with that title. Yes, definitely. And um, many people, about 50% of dog owners have dogs that um, seem to anticipate the arrival of a member of the family. They wait at a door or a window. And we did experiments there. Again, the standard sceptical argument is they're going to the window all the time, or uh, it just happens when they at a routine time when the person comes home, or they hear the car wheel drawing, the cars drawing up a familiar car engine outside the house. But um, in the experiments we've done, um, we have dogs that do this at least 15 minutes in advance. We have the people go at least eight kilometers away, where they come home at randomly chosen times that we pick. They come in unfamiliar vehicles, and the dogs still do it over and over again. Now, again, the Randy argument doesn't really apply there. These dogs are not making a living out of being psychic dogs. They're just normal dogs that belong to normal people. Um So um, I think his arguments are perfectly valid when dealing with people who are professional miracle workers or claim to affect, you know, stage, basically media type people. But I've deliberately focused my research on ordinary claims of ordinary people. And so when the skeptics say extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence, um, my answer to that is, These are not extraordinary claims. 95% of people claim to have felt they're being stared at from behind. It's an ordinary claim. Okay. It's the skeptics who are making the extraordinary claim. They're saying that 95% of the population are mistaken about their own experience. And And they claim to know they're mistaken on theoretical grounds without any empirical investigation at all. So there's no extraordinary evidence for their point of view. Um, And when you... Just a second.
0: And when you try to publish this like phone guessing experiment, you get rejected, you get major changes, or the scientific literature accept this and listen, they let you publish it because Harvard professor, Harvard physics professor, Professor Avi Leib, the author of extraterrestrial was here on the show recently. And he said that his article regarding the, this giant asteroid, Oumuamua, was basically an extraterrestrial, was accepted in three days. And this, this is a very unorthodox theory that an extraterrestrial from a very intelligent culture approached Earth. And it was accepted in, in three days. So what is your argument? Does, does it hard or impossible to publish those kinds of things? Or as Professor Avileb said, I published it in three days.
1: Well, it depends which journal. You see, there's a very strong taboo against psychic phenomena. Um, probably much stronger than the taboo against intelligent life on other planets.
0: This was a, a, a Avi pub published his first article in Scientific American. Now it's not Nature, it's not Science, but still, it's a. It's not a an unheard journal
1: no well um in my own case for example when i did my research on dogs that know when their owners are coming home um, i submitted it to one of the leading journals in animal behavior research called animal behavior and i got a letter back from the editor within two or three days saying no reviewer for this journal would consider any paper that mentions the word telepathy, and I'm therefore rejecting your paper without review. Um, so I then sent it to the Journal of Scientific Exploration, which is a journal that deals with open-minded exploration of unsolved scientific problems. And they, um, I went through peer review, and it was published. Um, so there are many scientific journals, and if you don't get something accepted by one, you I've, I've published over 90 Scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals, so you can do this, but you'd never get a paper on telepathy under present conditions in Nature or Science or Scientific American, where Michael Shermer, who's one of the, I think one of the uh, perfect example of a dogmatic skeptic, writes the so-called skeptic column, unpeer-reviewed skeptic column.
0: I, I up up until recently I was sure that you are correct, but then we had uh, Michael Shermer had on. On his podcast, he had Stephen Meyer and they discussed uh, intelligent design and they didn't debate. They just discussed those ideas. And maybe Michael Shermer, we uh, think his, uh, his whole uh, life again, but something do happens. And when I spoke with Michael Shermer, he said that there is a tendency to bo- go back to religious thinking, mainly because Jordan Peterson and many others. And maybe... In maybe in in two to three to ten years, those things will be much more common. Now, let's move on with your permission because we don't have much time and you are so full with great stuff uh, to morphic resonance. Now, morphic resonance is a big theory and we are not going to cover it in depth, but basically what you say that nature... uh, uh, how can I put it simply that nature is not an unconscious thing that it has, for example, like a like a unified memory of nature. And you have a great example with uh with crystalline, how you can crystallize ther- a, a certain substance. So if you could please elaborate on the crystallization process or the crystallization experiment, and then we can move on to my question.
1: All right, well, morphic resonance says there's a kind of memory inherent in nature and each kind of self-organizing system uh, has a sort of collective memory uh, based on similar systems in the past. So each species of animal and plant has a kind of collective memory. This applies to crystals as well. So if you make a new chemical for the first time and you crystallize it, there's, there's no existing pattern for the lattice structure of the crystal. Um, And the conventional assumption is that uh, it should crystallize the same way the first time and the millionth time and the billionth time, because it's governed by the eternal laws of nature, thermodynamics, electromagnetism, quantum theory, etc. According to the morphic resonance idea, the first time it crystallizes, you may have to wait quite a long time because a new field has to come into being. We don't know how new things happen, but they do happen. And once it's crystallized, Um, it should be easier to crystallize it um, anywhere else in the world. And the more often you do it, the easier it should get. Uh, Now, it's actually well known to chemists that this happens. Um, And it's been known for a long, long time that this happens. But they've always explained it in a different way. They say, well, this is because fragments of previous crystals get carried from lab to lab on the beards of migrant chemists, or else they're wafted through the atmosphere as invisible dust particles and settle out in labs all around the world. Well, um, to test this, um, you can just exclude bearded migrant chemists or any migrant chemists and um, uh, filter out dust particles. And what I'm saying is they should still crystallize faster. Um, So this is a a testable, uh, easily testable uh, phenomenon. Uh, it also applies to animal behavior. If you train rats to learn a new trick in London, rats should learn it quicker in New York. And, and there is not
0: right <laughs> rat, rat rice, uh, rat dust from from the UK to Australia. So, so, so how how this rat thing that a rat or cats can learn a new trick much faster in different continents can be explained in the conventional way?
1: Well, it isn't explained in the conventional way. It's, it, Well, except the usual explanation would be, well, the scientists themselves get better at doing the experiments. And, of course, that's something that can take place. But in the case of experiments with rats, which have actually been done at Harvard, the University of Edinburgh and Melbourne, Australia, um, When they found that the rats were actually learning quicker and that it wasn't just rats descended from trained parents, but all the rats of that breed, um, people just said, well, you know, it's not Lamarckian inheritance, which is why they were doing experiments, what would now be called epigenetic inheritance. Um, And they said, we've proved it's not Lamarckian inheritance. That was what they wanted to prove. And so they just stopped there and everyone said, oh, well, good thing it's not. Lamarckian inheritance. But the phenomenon itself was simply unexplained. Yeah, it
0: it is not Lamarckian, but it is much bigger. Let me just uh, give you something from the Jewish tradition. There is is a very famous saying that I think stresses your theory regarding morphic resonance from Jewish tradition. And it goes like this, in the 16th century, there was a, a famous rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Caro, and he and he was uh, and he was thinking very hard for like several weeks on a new idea, a new construct in Judaism. And finally, after th- several weeks, he managed to conceptualize the new idea. And he came to the synagogue and he say like a, a a young rabbi uh, citing this very very new idea, and he was very depressed that it took him so long, several weeks, and this young person just got it instantly. So he went to his rabbi, and his rabbi, Rabbi Luya, he, he he was famous in the Kabbalah. Said, "Listen, you just took this idea and 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 got it to earth and got it down, and when it is on earth, it is much easier for other person to access it. So." I think that is like morphic resonance from the from the Jewish tradition. It is a very famous story. And when I encounter your morphic resonance theory, it's just wow! This is basically the same. When you when you have this idea like independent inventions from all around the world, like in the same times, many people from all around the world invent the same thing. But my my question regarding your theory regarding morphic resonance is is twofold. Why? If it is a scientific theory, according to Popper, what needs to be done in order you for to say no, this is a false theory? This is one and two. Let's say that I'm a young scientist. I want to publish as much as I can, and what you say are mind blowing. So how come not more scientists pushing in this in this vector, which is basically mind staggering?
1: Well, I'll deal with the second one first. The um, When my book, um, A New Science of Life, was published in 1981, when I first proposed the idea of morphic resonance, um, I was trying to um, open up new lines of inquiry and research. I proposed a whole range of experiments in chemistry and biology, primarily, um, and psychology. And when the book first came out, the first few months, there was an uh, really engaged and interesting discussion and I gave seminars in universities and it was a lively debate and it was just what I hoped for. Then after three or four months an editorial appeared on the front page of Nature by the editor of Nature Sir John Maddox called A Book for Burning and he proclaimed that this uh, he compared my book unfavorably with Mein Kampf by Hitler and um then um said that this book was uh, you know that it was pure heresy what i was saying and um that uh, it shouldn't be taken seriously and basically he excommunicated me or tried to from the scientific world and it meant that i couldn't get a job and i couldn't get grants from thereafter and i was dangerous to know and ever since then um whenever I'm invited to give a talk at a university, there's, there's always some, even now, there's some kind of backlash where some people who are believers, usually scientific uh, materialists, um, say that I shouldn't be allowed to give this talk because it's heresy and it will corrupt the minds of the young. And they try and get me disinvited. Sometimes I am disinvited. And the TED, the banning of my 2013 ted talk on the science delusion was an example of that kind of thing Um, so many graduate students write to me many i have several a week from students emails saying they'd like to do research on morphic resonance but what invariably happens is that their phd supervisors or potential supervisors say to them well some of them are open-minded some say well personally you know I'm interested in this and I think it's a valid course of inquiry, but I advise you not to do it because if you do, you'll destroy your career before it's even begun. Um, so right now it's treated as heresy and anyone who does research on it uh, is 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 labeled a heretic or won't get grants or jobs. People are terrified of of being deprived of jobs and grants, because science is not very pluralistic, as you said at the beginning, and and it's uh, extraordinarily intolerant of uh, what's branded as heresy. Now, coming to the first part of the question, um, when Karl Popper said that scientific theories should be refutable, it was a kind of logical point he was making. In practice, he later said, when you've got a new theory, it's more important to have positive evidence that makes people take the theory seriously enough to think it's worth refuting. So, the, with a new theory, you look for positive evidence, um, and uh, the kind, of the experiments I've been proposing, uh, are ones which, if morphic resonance exists, would show that it does exist. But if you want to pursue the refutation point, then you would say you could say, well, in in relation to crystals, the standard theory is that they should crystallize the same way the first time, the millionth and the billionth time, because the laws of nature are fixed. Now, doing this experiment would enable us to refute the conventional theory. If they don't behave that way, it would help to refute the conventional theory. Well, nobody's very interested in refuting conventional theories, as I've discovered. They're only interested in defending them. So when um, defenders of orthodox science use the refutation argument of Popper. They use it as a stick to beat any new theory with, but they never apply it to, to their own. <coughs> this is um, a very interesting thing that, although
0: the refutation argument is a very important one, and any any, any scientific theory should have a refutation uh, back though first we need to just stretth- strengthen our theory and find positive, positive evidence that it does work, because then people will take it seriously. This is very important, and I, I I didn't think about it so far. So this is a very important point. Now, in the new edition of Science Set Free, on the cover there is with new experiment or with new evidence. So this book, I think, was published. The new, the first edition was published, and when? 2012 2012 and now almost almost 10, 10 years what in your opinion is the strongest evidence in the that that you that that you have that has been
1: learned in the past 10 uh, 9 years well the the book is about all aspects of science it's not just about morphic resonance and in the first edition um, I argued in there's a chapter on the nature of biological inheritance. Um, and uh, I've been arguing for years that genes are grossly overrated because I think that genes explain the inheritance of protein uh, sequence of amino acids in proteins, but they don't explain all the form and instincts of animals, for example. Uh, they explain what proteins they make. Um, and I think that morphic resonance underlies the inheritance of most of form and behavior. So genes are only part of inheritance. Now, it was very hard to get that point across because in the 1980s and 90s, everyone was convinced that the Human Genome Project and genome sequencing would reveal the very secret of life at the molecular level, and billions and billions and billions of dollars were invested in all this. Um, The Human Genome Project turned out to be very disappointing once it had happened. It's a technical triumph, but instead of enabling us to predict every detail of humans from their genes, uh, it's surprisingly um, unhelpful. And in the new edition, I deal with what's come up since the first edition came out, namely the missing heritability problem, the study of tens of thousands of people's genomes have revealed that when you actually try and correlate the genes with characteristics like height or proneness to breast cancer or whatever, um, the genes explain less than 10%. uh, In the best cases, it might be about 12% or 15% max, um, um, usually much less than that of the inheritance. whereas we know that these things are 80 percent heritable that the much of these these characteristics are inherited but genes explain only a small part of it and this is called the missing heritability problem well i predicted this ages ago um and this has now happened and it's widely accepted that there's a missing heritability problem part of it is explained by epigenetics uh, the inheritance of acquired characters um, but only part so epigenetics is a science of how different genes
0: behave or act or activate in different scenarios so two people have like the same gene but but for one the the gene is activated the the gene is turned on and therefore he, he has certain traits certain behavior like higher intelligence and On and in the other, the gene is turned off. And what determined on and off is determined by, for example, the environment. Yes, this is a concept of epigenetics.
1: Yes, good explanation, Roy. And the the genes are modified by methylation of the DNA um, or by methylation or other changes to the histone proteins that bind to the DNA. So, um, and it usually, These changes are wiped clean um, when sperm and egg cells form. But in some cases, they're not. And so you can actually have a passing on of an inheritance of acquired characters, which in the 20th century was taboo in Western countries, although it was accepted in the Soviet Union. Um, uh, And uh, this means that what was previously thought impossible is now possible. the passing on of inheritance of acquired characters, but this explains only a part of the missing heritability problem. So in the new edition of my book, I deal with that's one issue that changes the argument. Um, another issue is that in I have a chapter, uh, chapter 11 is called Illusions of Objectivity, where scientists like to think they're supremely objective compared with everybody else. and. What I pointed out in the first edition, scientists
0: and supreme judge court, <laughs> 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 they do think they are they are purely objective.
1: Yes, well, they thought that they, they thought that, you see, that um, uh, they were very very objective, and, and um, I knew and and many, most scientists know that actually they publish results very selectively. That um, you don't publish experiments that don't work, and you don't publish ones that go against your theory unless the drawer effect, where you
0: have many papers and you just and and what doesn't succeed you put in the drawer and what succeed you just published. And you and uh, my field of expertise is deep learning. And when you say why did you why did you choose this uh, this are architecture, so I know because this is the only architecture that actually worked. So, we scientists are not objectives in in the <coughs> in in the scientific inquiry. It doesn't mean that they are flawed, but but no. I think that you know the pressure to publish is so hard and it's so big and it's so massive that people sometimes take shortcuts.
1: Well, you see, the thing is, in the first edition, I pointed this out. Um, But then just two or three years later the replicability crisis burst within science and this was headline news in nature and science and so on it turned out that in biomedical science up to 90 percent of published papers in top journals could not be replicated in psychology about 60 percent the majority of papers in the most prestigious scientific journals cannot be replicated so and that's why it's called the reproducibility crisis or the replication crisis um and so i cover that in the new edition of my book and that very much amplifies what i was saying in the first edition but now instead of it being uh, people thinking i was just saying this and i may be part of you have empirical
0: evidence
1: yes this is and i mean i didn't gather this evidence this is something that's now completely mainstream in science that there is and the reasons for it have are now widely accepted, largely because of selective publication and putting the uh, results in, in drawers. And also, um, you know, the normal argument of people who defend scientism is that science is uniquely objective, firstly, because the peer review system uh, ensures very high quality, and secondly, because it's all replicable. Well, it turns out that in practice, Most people never bother replicating experiments, and if they do, until recently, most journals would not accept their paper for publication on the grounds that it's not original. Um, So there was a systematic bias in publication, not only from the scientists themselves, but the way in which the scientific journals work. I Um, think
0: that the originality issue was such a major one that you cannot replicate a study. Now, listen, I have so much to ask you, but I only have... Five more minutes. So with your permission, let me go to two final questions. I wanted to ask you about how morphic resonance uh, deals with the Flynn effect or the Flynn-Lean effect about the the growth of IQ in the 20th century, but I will pass on this and we'll ask you two last questions. Now, you had almost a lifelong friendship with Terence McKenna and you often quote him saying that Modern science work on the principles that give me one free miracle, and I will explain everything from there. So, first, could you please elaborate in two minutes about this great sentence?
1: Well, Terence was referring to the Big Big Bang Bang Theory, um, where, according to the Big Bang Theory, all the laws of nature and all the constants of nature suddenly appear from nowhere at the beginning of the universe. Um, And also, all the matter and energy in the universe suddenly appears from nowhere. So the entire universe, all the matter and energy and all the laws that govern it appear from nothing in a single instant. And that's what he called the one free miracle that scientists believe in. Uh, and then they say, well, once we've got that, we'll explain the rest. It's just a matter of detail. Um, so I think that was a, you know, it was a very witty way of putting it. Um,
0: Okay, and your your first encounter, I think, is what's very amusing. I think that he, he, he are like his first words to you was, "Doctor Sheldrake, I presume. Yes, yes, is that's right. Know? Okay, but and second, and this will be my last question for today. What is the most valuable lesson that you take from your friendship with Terence?
1: Well, I think Terence. Uh, I don't know that there was a single lesson. Uh, it, Terence represented a kind of freedom of mind and inquiry and imagination. And it was really about the power of imagination, but not just random imagination, but controlled by wonderful gift of language and poetic speech um, and an integration of psychedelic experience with the imagination and uh, the way we see the world giving a much expanded view of the mind and the nature of the mind and the nature of, of reality. And uh, w- what this showed also was that if when we explore consciousness from within, as we can through psychedelic experiences and through meditation and through many other experiences, then we find that it's much more than just our own brains and our own mental activity, we seem to be in contact with many other forms of consciousness uh, beyond the human level. Um, Telepathy and things are, are not spiritual phenomena, they're psychic phenomena, they're to do with as it were, horizontal connections between people and animals and the sense of being stared at. It's about connecting with the environment. It's not a spiritual phenomenon um, and uh, not has very little to do with religion. It's simply a biological phenomenon. Um, but these uh, psychedelic experiences reveal the existence of other entities, other beings. Now, all religions have accepted this for a long time, even very monotheistic religions like Judaism and Islam have hosts of angels and other kinds of spirit beings. Um, and uh, so, uh, and of course, Hinduism has devas and countless beings. And, and so I think what Terence uh, and his work did was just open up the scope of our thinking about the nature of possibilities. To different possibilities, but, yes. but
0: you had, you weren't just a duo. You were like a triplet with Ralph Avram. And you said, this is your book, your, like 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 summary of your uh, conversations. And you said, I think that three, and I tell it to my students all this time based on what you said, that like three was the best number because two, sometimes the conversation stacks and four is too much. But three always get you like the enough fuel To continue the momentum. So if you can just like give me a few words on why do you think, in your opinion, three people to think signed together was like the best number?
1: Well, you summarized it quite well, actually, Roy. I mean, we did experiments ourselves, not necessarily intentionally, but sometimes it was just me and Terence. Sometimes it's just me and Ralph, sometimes just Ralph and Terence. And we found that these conversations, though interesting, never worked as well as when there were the three of us. Um, however, Ralph's a mathematician, as you know, so he was very keen on the numerical principle of three. Um, and um, when Terence so sadly died in the year 2000, Ralph and I, um, based on the idea of threes, the magic number, tried to find a replacement for Terence in our trial logs. We tried all sorts of people. We tried trial logs with... Uh, You know, a whole range of men and women um, that we thought might be suitable. And none of them worked as well as with Terence. So I have to say that one in great uh, freeness uh, in in a dialogue is 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 a trialogue is is important. And I found this in other contexts, too. But these particular ones, uh, their extraordinary quality depended very much on Terence and his freedom of mind, his wit, his humour. His, his ability to, um, to speak in a kind of bardic. He came from Irish and Welsh ancestry, and it was a kind of bardic gift, you know, the ability to for the speech, magical speech, just to flow through him. It was just amazing. So that was very definitely a part of it as well. May God
0: save his soul. And again, Trialogues are much are more important and more useful than dialogue, special in scientific inquiry. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, thank you so much for coming today. It was a mind-staggering conversation, so much to digest right now. Thank you so much for your time, for your uh, scientific inquiry, and for your like, lifelong impressive work. Thank
1: you so much. Well, thank you, Roy. I'm very glad that you're creating an open forum for a discussion of ideas. It's really important.
0: Okay, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as at least half of what I enjoyed, because it no, was... I did indeed. Yes. <laughs> it was a true pleasure. Thank you so much. Right. <laughs> שמאנייתכם, שאתם רוצים לlkachat חלה, פשוט ספרו אותו לאנשים אחרים. משהו מאניית שאני אמרתי, משהו מאניית שאוראך שלי אמר. זה שורה אירון שאתם רוצים לlkachat יתחם, לחיים, פשוט ספרו אותו לחבר או לחברה. אז חתובה ביותר לזכור את האירונות מתוך השיחות האלה. הדבר השני, אם אתם רוצים לlkachat חלק בקיילה שלנו, ולעגש ולדבר עם אנשים כמוכם, אתם לערוץ. שלנו. שווה לכם מאוד. פשוט מגניבים בדיוק כמוכם והדבר האחרון אם אתם יכולים דרגו את הערוץ שלנו באפליקציות הפודקאסטים שלכם זה יכול להיות בספוטיפיי באפל פודקאסט או בגוגל פודקאסט זה תהליך קצר של שתי שניות הוא מאוד מאוד יעזור לנו להפיז את הבשורה הלאה שיהיה לכם כיף גדול וכיף בשיחה הבאה.